All right, kiddos don't go anywhere quite yet. See, I haven't dismissed you, have I? I haven't said it, have I? Huh? Dang it. Yeah, just sit tight for a second. Mommy will be right back. Um, You guys uh, hopefully noticed that in our uh, song selections this evening, um, it was very theologically heavy, um, especially in that last song, talking about the creed and what we believe um, and sort of systematic theology. And uh, that'll be apparent um, as uh, uh, we get into the message for this evening, why um, the songs were selected for what kind of things we believe and what kind of things we know and what, what are the beliefs that we have laid out. Um, uh, that'll be important. So we're continuing our series in the book of First John. So you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Um, our series called Light Walkers. Um, and today we are going to add um, another layer to this study. All right, kids, you can now be dismissed. Yes, finally. It's the worst being here. I know. What's that? Huh? Oh, all right then. Um, I just received word from my beautiful wife that uh, my sister-in-law is in labor currently. So, uh, we will be saying an extra prayer for Nissa and my brother Micah. Um, so, First uh, John will be in chapter 2. Tonight we're going to add another layer to our series. Um, so far in First John, we've covered um, a number of the ways that we as believers are called to follow Christ. As the title of our series suggests, one of those ways is how we walk. And so the series is titled Light Walkers. This uh, is our conduct, our lifestyle, our commitment to consistently follow the commands of God. We cannot claim to know Christ and yet still walk in darkness. Our lives have to match up with the words that we claim. John has also talked about the importance of where our heart is, what or whom we love, whether we love the things of this world or if we love the Lord. And last week, we talked about guarding ourselves against the temptations of this world, these things that draw our hearts away from the Lord and onto what is truly a sinking ship. So, in various ways, so far, we've talked about two layers of light walking. Those are what we do as believers and what we love as believers. What we do and what we love. And these two are intrinsically connected because what you love will affect what you do. It will affect the choices that you make. So, it is that love that comes first and is most important. Today, to that, what we do and what we love, John will add a third layer, and that is what we know as believers. There are many people who view theology and the study of it as being something that's reserved for academics. Old men in tweed jackets with long white beards. What's truly important, they say, is how you relate to God, how you experience God. Or or they might say, it's a waste if we just spend all of our time learning things about God 
We should be going out and spreading the love of God, right? The world needs a loving God, not a textbook. Isn't Jesus enough? Shouldn't we focus on his love? Shouldn't we focus on things that are practical, not on theological questions that don't have anything to do with the real world? Who cares, the old question goes, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? On the surface, perhaps, that might sound like it makes sense. But according to John, and I think really just according to good reason and logic, that is not the case. Logically, it is impossible to divorce the practical from the epistemological. Meaning, you can't actually do practical things without knowledge about those practical things and why those practical things are important. You can't just focus on the love of Jesus without that being a theological practice. To do any kind of interaction with Jesus is to engage in theology. Who, of course, is Jesus? What do we mean when we use the term Lord? What do we mean when we talk about the love of God? And why is it important to spread the love of God? Why are practical actions necessary? Answering those types of questions is the business of theology. And so according to John, loving, doing, and knowing are three sides of a triangle. Loving, doing, and knowing. And if you remove one the entire triangle will collapse. We'll talk later about one of the groups that John is specifically addressing, specifically combating in this text, which this group is trying to emphasize knowing overdoing, experience over commitment, mysticism over theology. And one of the things that we'll see is that that ancient heresy has not died off at all. It is still very much alive and well today. We'll also see that John uses some pretty jarring terms, one of them being antichrists. That word antichrist is jarring because of its implications. But John, as we've seen so far in this book, is not one to shy away from jarring terms, nor is he one to give wiggle room. He's already referred to people who claim to be Christians, but their lives don't match up, as liars, deceivers, and people walking in darkness. So, John really isn't one of those people that says, well, you know, they're doing their best. Uh, Let's give them a break. He's not that kind of person. And rightly so, I think, because eternity is at stake. And it's essential that we get these things right. I want to show you today that it is essential for believers to consistently pursue the knowledge of the things of God. Because if you don't, you can be easily deceived by things that sound good and look good and feel good, but aren't actually good. And it is my intention to lead this church in such a way that you all have a deep, wide, firm foundation upon which to build your knowledge of God. Theological truth rooted in Jesus. 
It's one of the reasons why I preach such long sermons, because there's a lot to cover, and I don't want to miss what is there. I want you guys to have truth in your hands. I don't want you to fall prey to bad theology. Bad theology can wreck your entire eternity, and in the here and now, it can also be very, very painful. I'll give you an example. On December 14th, 2019, so just a couple of months ago, two-year-old Olive Haligenthal went to sleep peacefully in her bed. At some point, however, during the night, she stopped breathing. Her parents, Andrew and Kelly, called 911. Paramedics came onto the scene, tried to resuscitate little Olive, but were unable, and the girl was declared dead. Her parents, however, began to declare something decidedly different. See, Kelly Haligenthal is a a worship leader for Bethel Church in Redding, California. Their music, uh, Bethel Church, is a consistent mainstay atop all of the worship music charts. Um, We sing a number of their songs in this church. You probably have some of their songs memorized without necessarily realizing that they are Bethel songs. But perhaps you might not be aware of the controversy that's surrounding the theology of their church. Their pastor, Bill Johnson, is a proponent of what is called word-faith theology. And essentially, word-faith theology is really just kind of a repackaging of name-it-and-claim-it theology. Essentially, it teaches that you speak into existence the promises of faith. By declaring something in faith, someone actually makes something come to pass. And so, this has been the token theology of Faith healers, prosperity gospel teachers, and of course health and wealth proponents. Bill Johnson teaches that suffering is not from God. Suffering is actually a tool from the enemy. And that the idea that God would use suffering for our good is actually a lie from Satan himself. He says that if anyone does not prosper in this life... It's because they have unwittingly given control of their lives to Satan. And that God will not deliver us from the sufferings of this life unless we ask him to. And so he teaches, he actually says that on the cross, Jesus not only defeated sin, he also defeated illness and poverty I actually watched this week a clip from one of their staff pastors um, addressing the congregation at Bethel, declaring over them freedom from all debt, that everyone in the congregation would no longer have any kind of debt, and that everyone in the congregation would own a large five-bedroom house. No, I am not kidding. This actually happened. Now the key, of course, to receiving all of this is to just have enough faith or the right kind of faith. Directly on his website, on Bill Johnson's website, you can find an article, Is It Always God's Will to Heal? 
And he says in that article that absolutely it is. He says, how can God choose not to heal someone when he has already purchased their healing? Was his blood enough for all sin or just certain sins? Were the stripes he bore only for certain illnesses or certain seasons of time? When he bore stripes in his body, he made a payment for our miracle. He already decided to heal. You cannot decide to buy, not to buy something after you've already bought it. There are no deficiencies on his end. All lack is on our end of the equation. And so after this, Johnson then gives a list of things to do to fix our problem. A problem that leads to a lack of the miraculous. His advice includes not knowing that it's God's fault. Which, by implication, obviously means it's our fault. It's somebody's fault when healing does not happen. We somehow are to blame. He says that we should learn from miracle workers. He says pray and fast and pray riskier prayers. And whatever you do, do not pray if thy will be done. Because healing never comes from those kinds of prayers. So, With that being the setting, the context, the teaching of Bethel Church, it shouldn't really come as a surprise what happened next with the Heligenthal family. In an Instagram post, the day after little Olive died, Haley, the mother, the worship leader, asked her followers for prayer, saying, We believe in a Jesus who died and conclusively defeated every grave, holding the keys to resurrection power. We need it for our little Olive Elaine, who stopped breathing yesterday and has been pronounced dead by doctors. We are asking for bold, unified prayers from the global church to stand with us in a belief that he will raise this little girl back to life. Her time here is not done. And it is our time to believe boldly and with confidence wield what King Jesus paid for, It's time for her to come to life. In the days that followed, the hashtag WakeUpOlive began to trend worldwide on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. Thousands of people, including many in the Christian music scene, shared posts of their own on their own accounts, asking for their followers to join in the prayer. For consecutive days, Bethel Church in California held worship services, held prayer gatherings, declaring resurrection for Olive. This continued for nearly a week. With all the faith they they could muster, the Bethel congregation, joined by people worldwide, declared that Olive would rise again. As I'm sure you've already guessed... It did not happen. That, after all, would have been the news story of the century. There would be no one who had not heard of that. On December 21st, six days after Olive's death, Bethel released a statement on their Facebook page saying that they were planning the memorial service. Saying, The breakthrough we have sought hasn't come, but the joy of our faith 
is that though we haven't seen the miracle of Olive being raised, she is alive in the presence of God. Her mom and dad will see her again, and we too will join in her resurrection one day. Decidedly absent from that statement was any mention that a lack of faith on someone's part was to blame for Olive not being raised. Now, I do not share this story to be insensitive to the Heiligenthal family. I cannot even imagine the depth of the pain that they experienced in the sudden death of their two-year-old girl. The reason I bring up this story is to give an illustration of what John is going to teach us today And that is that if we do not have a firm grasp on truth, it will lead us to devastating places. So, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, Abide in him. So, I want us to note once more the gentle tone that John starts with at the beginning of this passage by using the word children. We've seen him use this term a number of times already in the book of 1 John, and it is a term of endearment that he uses for all of the believers. And it tells us that John isn't coming to this as one who is angry, trying to lay down the hammer. John is coming to this as a father trying to teach an essential truth to a beloved son or a beloved daughter. The picture is of a father pulling a child onto his knee, looking tenderly in their eye and saying, Son, I need to teach you something very important about the world. You need to learn this now because it will affect the rest of your life. So learn this, pay attention to what I'm saying, and don't forget. John, after this, then uses two terms, the last hour and antichrist. 
the last hour, and Antichrist. And it's essential, I think, that we define these terms so that we know exactly what he's referring to. What does he mean when he says the last hour and Antichrist? Once we get to that, then we can really get to the heart of what he's teaching. When we hear terms like the last hour and Antichrist, I think we immediately start thinking of things like the Left Behind series. We start thinking about the apocalypse, the end of the world. Is John talking about four horsemen and dragons and all this different stuff? Here? No. That, that's not what he's referring to here. So, what does he mean? The first term, the last hour. When we hear this term, what we think of is, the world is about to end. The world is about to end. But, interestingly, there are actually two different Greek words that mean last. So that term, the last hour, there's two different words that can be used. One of them means the very last, and the other means the last portion. So, when John uses this term here, he is using the Greek word that refers to the last portion. So, we can't look at this as some kind of failed prophecy. As if John was wrong about being in the last hour. We can't look at this and go, ah, man, John really got this wrong. He thought the world was about to end. And, uh, it's been 2,000 years. Clearly, John was wrong, buddy. Why would you use that term? No, what he means is we are in the last portion of time. So if if we were to know what the entire spectrum of time was from beginning to end, whatever that last portion is, however large it is, that's the one that we're in. It could be that the world ends tomorrow. It could be next month. It could be 5,000 years from now. The point is, we don't know how much longer we have. The end is imminent. We're in the fourth quarter. We just don't know how many minutes are in the fourth quarter. But we're in it. We know that the promised Messiah was looked forward to the entire Old Testament. And that period of time ended with Jesus. Jesus came, fulfilled every prophecy, and then prophesied that he was going to come again. That is the beginning of what is known as the last days or the last hour. And when Jesus does come back a second time, then we know we can use the Greek term, the very last hour. Now it's really about to end. So this term is simply referring to the time in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And none of us knows when he is coming back, okay? Despite theologians that will try to tell you otherwise, if you hear someone say, I have figured out when he's coming back, do not listen, okay? This has happened a number of times before. Some preachers who have said, mathematically, I figured it all out, and Jesus is going to come back on this day. And then that day comes, and Jesus doesn't come back. And they're like... Oh, I forgot to carry the one. It's going to happen on this day. And then it doesn't happen again. And you would think that no one would go to that guy's church anymore. But I digress. So John is telling us, we don't know when he's coming back. So right now, we got to live with some urgency. 
We've got to live with some urgency. We know that he's purchased salvation on our behalf and we're in the last quarter. We're in the fourth quarter. So this time period that John began to write nearly 2,000 years ago has sort of been building in intensity ever since that time. And there's a sense in which we're building up to the climax of, of history. Jesus also talked about the last days, uh, or, or the last hour. And John is one of the ones that records him describing uh, this, this time. Jesus said that during the last hour, many false prophets will arise and mislead many. So Jesus tells us, be on alert, because during that time, there's going to be a lot of people that stand up and say, I have the truth, I know the truth, or even flat out say, I am the Christ. And that's a helpful warning because if we look at the church in America and across the world, I think one of the things that we have to be honest about is that there's a lot of false prophets that have arisen and have misled many. So we've got to be on the alert. We have to know the truth so that we can recognize false doctrine when we see it. So that's term number one, the last days. Term number two is the term antichrist. Again, John uses this term here in a much different sense than what we're typically used to. Normally, when we hear that word, we're picturing in our minds Nikolai Carpathia or some political leader that we're waiting to be revealed as the one who is the tool of Satan to draw in the end of times. And we're like looking around all the time at various politicians going, is he the Antichrist? Is he the Antichrist? Surely this one is the Antichrist. But John here uses this word to describe anyone who simply denies the deity of Jesus or the hypostatic union of Jesus being fully God and fully man. Look at verse 22 very clearly. He says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. The Antichrist, he says, is anyone who denies the lordship, the identity, the person and work, of Jesus. Now, does that mean that John doesn't ever use the term Antichrist in the way that we're typically used to? Well, of course he does. John wrote Revelation. So John is the one that wrote the term Antichrist in the the book of Revelation in the way that we typically think about it. But right here, what John is saying is we don't need to sit around and wonder about who is the Antichrist. What we need to be more concerned about are the Antichrists that surround us in culture. And more dangerously, the ones that have infiltrated the church. So, it brings us to point number one. The Antichrist that should concern us are the ones teaching in churches. Now it's clear that John is referring to a specific people group that his audience would have immediately recognized. 
this was a group of people that in verse 19 tells us, um, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are, are all not of us. So someone has gone out. Then he writes in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So there's a group of people that has gone out and are now trying to deceive the people in the church. So this is clearly a group of people that are part of the Christian movement. This is a group of people that started in the church. He's not talking about pagan Romans or members of another religion. He's not talking about the priests of Baal or anything like that. He's talking about people in the church. Not political leaders, but rather people who claim to know Jesus. People who claim to represent Jesus. Who claim that they're teaching the truth about Jesus but obviously do not conform to what he says we know is true. These people have come up with their own understanding of how to interpret the Bible. And when the elders begin to tell these people, uh, yeah, actually that's not true, you gotta cut that out, these people said, all right then, deuces, we're starting our own church. And they move into the building across the street and they start a really cool church plant and they have awesome music and all of the pastors have tattoos and piercings and everyone's like, oh man, these guys are awesome. Let's go over there. They're just another group of Christians and look at how relevant they are. So people are drawn away. These people in almost every way on the outside look like Christians. They sound like Christians but they do not teach orthodox Christian doctrine that we should know. Kind of like teaching that Jesus died on the cross to give you a five-bedroom house uh, and a life without pain, without suffering, without death. I mean, after all, it kind of makes you wonder why the disciples who knew Jesus better than literally anyone Almost all died martyrs' deaths. Every single one of them had incredibly painful lives, were tortured, imprisoned, beaten, and like I said, killed. John was the only one that wasn't. I have scoured the entirety of ancient documents and I haven't found a single one with the hashtag Wake Up Stephen. It's not there. So, who exactly was this group of people in this ancient world that John is talking about? This is a group of people known as the Gnostics, okay? And so there's a number of letters in the Old Testament where the Gnostics are addressed, and this is one of them. Gnosticism was a quasi-Christian looking uh, faith system Uh, where the word gnosis, the the Greek word gnosis, means knowledge. And so these people believed that salvation was found in this sort of mystical secret knowledge that only, by the way, an elite group of people could ever access. And so there was very much uh, an elite club of people that said, we know the truth, come and get it 
from us. Uh, The Gnostics had this dualistic view of the world. They believed that the flesh, the material, the body, is evil. But the spirit is good because God is spirit. So whatever is good is spirit and the flesh is evil. Well, interestingly, that led to a particularly lascivious lifestyle because they said the evil flesh is just going to do what the evil flesh is going to do. We can't help what our bodies do. That's what evil bodies do. I can't help that my body sins. My body's evil, but my heart is still good. (laughs) Convenient. It would say, look, I'm a good person, okay? I believe in God. I'm down with Jesus. Yes, I also am living a very sinful lifestyle, but it's because I'm human. That's what humans do. Give me a break. So essentially what this boiled down to was, as long as you believe the right things, you're good. As long as you have the right faith, the right knowledge, you're good. The way that you live your life doesn't matter so much. You just have to have the right kind of belief. I think you would agree that that sounds like a lot of people today who claim to be Christians, right? So what are some ways that this Gnostic heresy plays out in our modern world? Lest we think that this was lost to the pages of history, again, it is still very much alive today. So remember, Gnostics had a dualistic way of thinking. The body is evil, the spirit is good. Now, while we might not necessarily see that explicitly stated anywhere, there is sort of a a lesser kind of a dualism that's still active. Many people today are concerned with finding their true self. After all, this is become one of the central beliefs in America that we need to find our true self. And our true self is typically associated with how you feel, not necessarily what your body indicates. In the Western world, a person's biology is not nearly as important as their mentality. That is placing the immaterial over the material. This also plays out in the debate surrounding issues like abortion. To the average American, personhood is not ascribed to the unborn unless it is wanted or carried to full term. Until then, it's viewed as just a clump of cells, not as a person. And there's never really a good answer or a consistent answer given as to when exactly a fetus becomes a person. And that answer, of course, will change depending on who you're talking to. But the point is the average person doesn't view a fetus as a living thing as much as it views them as someone with potential personhood at some point in the future. And their personhood will come from something other than biology. That means then their biology is meaningless. That, my friends, is Gnosticism. For the believer, the immaterial, the 
the mind, the soul, the spirit, and the material, the body. The material and the immaterial both are essential parts of a good creation. Both are part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We believe that when we die, yes, the body will die as well. But it doesn't, believe, it doesn't mean that we believe in an immaterial eternity. That heaven is some sort of disembodied state. That it's not corporeal. It's something that only the soul goes to. No, what we believe is that there will be a physical resurrection. And, and yes, there will be a soul resurrection. But this is foreshadowed by Jesus. Jesus having an actual, literal, physical resurrection. He defeats death on our behalf, not just for our souls, but for our bodies as well. So the body and the soul both will be with God in a perfect, material world of heaven. So in order to remain consistent in that belief, it means that we need to place a ridiculously high value on the worth of the physical body. We can't treat it flippantly. We can't treat our bodies or the bodies of other people as mere tools for pleasure. We can't reduce people to mere physical traits. Because to do so is to not only ignore the worth of their souls, it's also to ignore the worth of their bodies. Both are working hand in hand to display the image of God. Therefore, we have to view every single person regardless of the quality of their immaterial or material makeup, as priceless, as honor-worthy, as sons or daughters of God. No one on earth should have a higher view of people than Christians. As a side note, I'll also say that Christians should be people who take good care of their bodies because of the value that we ascribe to them. We shouldn't abuse our, our bodies or neglect our bodies or treat our bodies with a lack of respect. We should recognize that our bodies as well as our souls are to be cared for to seek the image of God. We all agree that Christians should be pursuing holiness in their spiritual life. And that's mostly what we talk about. But I think it deserves to be said that Christians should also pursue excellent stewardship of their physical lives too. So, all that to say, the modern world and the modern church are filled with people who are teaching forms of modern Gnosticism. Ways that are emphasizing mystical experiences over a life dedicated to walking in the manner that Jesus walked. Teaching that the gospel is all about happiness, very little about holiness. Teaching that any form of physical suffering is evil and not from a good God. Teaching that the physical is subject and subservient to the immaterial. That we ought to place a much higher value on how we feel about God or experience his feelings toward us than we should on doing what he actually tells us to do. So any teacher that fails to address sin is a false teacher. Any teacher that takes what the Bible calls sin and reduces it to physical sickness that we can't help 
or makes it a minor issue that God overlooks because we're just doing the best we can, or worse, turns sin into something that we should accept and celebrate, is a false teacher. And the reverse of Gnosticism is also just as damaging. Any time a teacher claims that too much learning is bad for you, and what's really important is that we just love people, they're a false teacher. If there is a lack of emphasis on really getting deep into the Bible, and instead their messages are little more than just motivational speeches, they are false teachers. More than that, John uses the term antichrist. And he tells the believer that they must be able to recognize one when they see one. So, point number two. Believers must know and abide in the gospel. They must know and abide in the gospel. Remember I said earlier that what John shows us is that loving, doing, and knowing are like three sides of a triangle. Sorry, that was a square that I made with my hands. Triangle. There we go. Homeschooling. In order to follow Jesus, we have to love Jesus, we have to do what Jesus told us to do, and we have to know Jesus. If we remove any of these, any one that we take out actually makes the other two impossible. If we try to do and know without love, we're Pharisees. We're turning the Christian life into a list of rules and passages that we have to memorize. You're going to view God as being a taskmaster, as a distant judge who judges humanity solely on performance. So you're going to do everything that you can to get ahead of the curve. You're going to work harder and learn more to be the most impressive, good Christian that you can be. But in doing so, you've missed the entire heart of God. You don't love him, you fear him. And you've never experienced his love for you. All you've experienced is his requirements. That's what happens if you do and you know without love. Well, if you try to love and know without ever doing, well, then you're what Jesus described as a wicked, lazy servant in the parable of the talents. Um, I've used this analogy before, borrowed from Kyle Eidelman. If I were to go on a trip I'm going to be gone for a while, and I say to one of you, I need you to take care of my house. So I say, Stephanie, I need you to house sit for me. So I'm going to give you a list of things that need to be done. Here's when the dogs need to be fed, when they need to be taken out. Here's how you water the plants and keep them uh, healthy. This is what I need you to do with the security system. I give her this whole list. And then I leave. I go on my trip. Then I come back. And what I find is the house is in disarray. Both dogs are dead. The plants have wilted to nothingness. The security system is no longer working. And many things have been stolen from the house because the door was just left open. And I look at her and I go, Stephanie, what on earth just happened? I gave you a list of things to do. Now imagine she looks at me and she goes, I know. And your list was awesome. I memorized portions of it. 
I would get together with groups of people and we'd even sing songs about it. We had small group studies about your instructions and, and, and I, I wrote poetry about it. I wrote in my journal about your instructions. I would pray over your instructions nearly every day. Isn't that awesome? And I'd look around the house and I'd go, no, it's not awesome. Because you didn't do any of the stuff that I asked you to do. That is what happens in this life when we try to love and know without actually doing See, God has given us commands to follow. He's told us how to live. And it doesn't matter how often we gather here and talk about it or sing songs about it or have a small group about it or even pray about it if we're not going to actually do it. Finally, if we try to uh, love and do but without knowing, well, then you're just a groupie. You're, you're a fan with no real relationship whatsoever. Think of a, a celebrity that you are a fan of. You might know a bunch of facts about this celebrity. But do you actually know them? No, you don't actually know them. You might try to emulate them in various ways. You might try to dress like them or talk like them or act like them. You might uh, adopt some of the habits that you see. Uh, You might start doing some of the things in their routine that they post about on their Instagram stories, whatever. But if you were to run up to them on the street and go, I just love you, you might get pepper sprayed. Because they're going to look at you and go, who are you? I don't know you. You got to get out of my bubble. Because you have no real knowledge of them. You know facts about them. Their public persona, at least. But you don't actually know. Know them. It's the same way with God. If we just try to love God and do good things without actually ever trying to figure out who he is, what he said, and why, we'll never get deeper than surface level. We'll have a very shallow view of the Bible because we're not committed to knowing God through it. But when we put all three of them together, that's when we, when we really walk in the light. When we love him, we seek to know him through the word, and we do the things that he asked us to do, regardless of the opposition, that is walking in the light. Loving, knowing, and doing. So look at verses 20 and 21, then 24, then 26 and 27. So 20 and 21, he says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And no lie is of the truth. Then down in verse 24, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And then down in verses 26 and 27. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it's true and it's no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. There's so much that's there that we could spend really another hour on, but... You probably don't want me to do that, and my puppy that's in a crate at home probably doesn't want me to do that. 
But remember that he's addressing here genuine believers. He's addressing light walkers. And he's telling them things that should be true of them and by extension true of us if we're walking in the light. He says that we have knowledge. We know. And he's writing these things not because we're ignorant of the truth, but because we do know the truth. So we have to ask ourselves, how well do you know the truth? Are you spending time in the word every day? Are you studying it? Are you listening to it? Are you learning it so that you can grow in it? Are you pursuing a deeper knowledge of God in your personal life? No one can make that decision except you. You have to. I also have a vital role to play in this. As a pastor, as a teacher, I've been given the monumental, the humbling task of being the steward of the word for this church. And that is not something that I take lightly. I have been given the task of feeding the sheep. When he says in verse 27, you have no need that anyone should teach you, he's not saying that there shouldn't be teachers in your life. What he's addressing is the fact that there are false teachers saying, we've got something new to teach you. We've got something to give you that your teachers are not giving you. And the response to them, he says, should be, I don't need to be taught something new. I already know what I should be taught because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I don't need something new. I I need to be deepened in what I already know to be true. So my responsibility here is not to come up with new things. It's not to give you new stuff. It's not to rewrite the Bible to make it more relevant. My job is to not take the Bible and, and, and update it so that it speaks to a modern world and say things like, well, you know, when the Bible was written, they didn't really know all the stuff that we know now. They were doing the best they could. So let's add to what we think they were probably saying, but what they would say now. Or, you know, the Bible is a story that's still being written. It's not complete yet. And the Holy Spirit brings new revelation every day. Wrong. By the way, that's Rob Bell. If you ever hear his teaching, immediately the red flags should go up. My job every Sunday is to open the word and by the leading of the Holy Spirit, help us understand what's here. All of it in its entirety to give you knowledge that you can build your faith upon. So we both have a responsibility here. I have a responsibility to teach faithful truth. And you have a responsibility to learn it here and also to learn it at home. Homeschool theology. Okay, I'll use that term since so many of us are familiar with it. We have to homeschool ourselves in theology. We have to homeschool our families in solid truth consistently. Because when we do, we will know immediately when we recognize something that is false. Even if we can't pinpoint the exact falsehood, there's a check engine light that goes off in our spirit and says, something about this isn't true. 
there's something about this that, ah, this isn't right. Believers must know the truth of the gospel. And they must abide in it. That's what he says in verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. That word abide is the Greek word meno. It means to reside. And basically what it means is you're staying home and you're not going anywhere. You're not going out. I'm here. I stay here. I live here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not out there seeking anything new. I'm not out and about. I'm right here. My roots grow into this couch. And I'm not moving. Okay? Any of us who are homebodies know exactly what that feeling is. I don't want to go anywhere. I want to stay at home. John tells us to stay at home in the gospel. And when fancy doctrine invites you out, texts you and says, come out and play, we say, nah, I'm going to stay home. But come out with us. You'll learn something new and we're doing miraculous works for God. Nah, I'm going to stay right here in what I know to be true. The better you know it, the more firm you become in it, you stay and live in it. And you never move out. When a counterfeit appears, you'll be able to reject it right away. Final point. Anything less than the full gospel is heresy. Anything less than the full gospel is heresy. Even if the message contains true things. Even if it's mostly true things. If anything less than the full gospel is present, It's not the truth. Look again at verse 23. He says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So at the heart of all forms of counterfeit gospel is some type of denial of the Son. At the root of every false gospel is some type of crucial denial about Jesus. And they might say, Jesus is everything, Jesus is God, but there's something about their teaching that denies something about his words, the things he taught, or his character, his person. I'm sure that Bethel's pastor would tell you in a heartbeat, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the source of our life. He's who we worship. But his teaching explicitly denies things that Jesus said. For example, in John 16, where Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you, have, you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Bill Johnson denies that God would have you have trouble. Denies the words of the Son. You have to be able to recognize those things. Thus far in this book, John has pointed out several tests of true faith. Walking in the light instead of darkness, in chapter 1, verse 6. Not claiming to be sinless, which is to say, I'm basically a good person, in chapter 1, verse 8. A cycle of repentance from sin, uh, chapter 1, verse 9. Keeping his commandments, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Walking as Christ walked, 
chapter 2, verse 6. Loving your brother, chapter 2, verse 10. Not loving the world, chapter 2, verse 15. These are evidences of true faith. And so to paint the portrait here that John is laying out of someone who's given their life to Jesus, the pattern of their life will be different than the people around them. They don't live the same way. They're no longer living in darkness. They understand their need for a savior. They don't look at themselves and say, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. No, they look at their lives and they realize my sin has separated me from God. I am desperate for his grace. This person will have a high view of salvation because they acknowledge that without it, they're lost. God isn't just a part of their life. God is the source of their life. Now this person that John is describing isn't perfect by any means. This person still fights the same fight against sin. And many times they lose. They make mistakes. They make willful bad choices. But they don't excuse those sins as being, well, that's just what humans do. They don't just say, well, no one's perfect. Everyone makes mistakes. They don't stay in the sin, never changing the habit. They consistently and humbly bring those things before God, asking him to cleanse them from that sin and to help them strive to live a holy life. This person will have peace in the fact that Jesus has given that new life to him. And then they're committed to living and following and obeying him. They don't see God's commands as being suggestions. They see his commands as mandates for their lives because they recognize that Jesus is not just their savior. He's their Lord. Their life is not their own. So this person is gonna do whatever they can to pattern themselves after the example of Christ. To love as he loved. To serve as he served. To submit themselves to the Father as Christ submitted himself to the Father. And as they do this, that's gonna result in love for the people around them. They'll no longer see other people as commodities. They'll no longer rank people in terms of importance. Instead, they will treat others the way they desire to be treated. They'll love the image of God in every person. And they will see this world as a temporary home, not as the end all or be all. They'll have an eternal perspective. Rather than giving their time, treasures, and talents to pursuing the American dream, they will give their time, their treasures, and their talents to pursuing the Lord and to joining the rescue mission of all the lost souls around them. And to all of that, John adds this last evidence of true faith, that no one who is saved will have a low view of Jesus. Jesus will be everything. Jesus will be the way, the truth, the life, and the reason they have a relationship with the Father. And it's important that John points these things out because he's giving people a way to recognize when a poser is trying to pull them away. I've said before that 70% of people in America claim to be Christians. But would John find that statistic to be a bit inflated? I think he would. Someone might say, well, I'm a Christian, but their life isn't really that much different than anyone else. The way they spend their time and their money is pretty much the same as people who don't claim to be Christians. They talk, act, think the same way in every measurable way in their lives, but the only difference is that they claim to know Christ. And if you ask them, what church do you go to? And they say, oh, uh, I go to, to First Baptist. 
even though they haven't actually been to First Baptist since Easter of 2009, John would look at that person and say, you don't know the Father. Or a person might say, I believe in God. But it isn't because they believe they're a sinner in need of a Savior. It's more because they just want to go to heaven. They believe that man is basically good. So there's not any kind of urgency in their lives to bring sin before God. They might go to confession occasionally or pray a few times, but the sins in their life basically go unchecked. A person is caught up in the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. This person doesn't love their neighbor toward the Lord. They might be kind, they might be nice, but ultimately they're living for themselves. And to this person, John would say, you don't know the Father. We cannot deny the fullness of the gospel. And in order for us to uphold the fullness of the gospel, we got to know it. We got to really know it. We've got to study it and learn it and plant it deep within our hearts so that it will grow. We have to tend to it every day so that it bears fruit. We have to learn from the olders and wisers that have established themselves as faithful teachers of the word. And we have to put the three sides of that triangle together. Loving, doing, and knowing. And when we do that, that is when we can walk in the light every single day. Following Christ as he leads us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for giving us truth to know, to learn, to study, to build our lives upon. God, I pray for each one of us here and each person listening online, Lord, that we would commit ourselves to knowing you, to loving you, to doing what you ask us to do. That as we pursue you in these essential ways, we would walk in the light. God, I pray that if there are any who have not given themselves to you, or that you would draw them to you, that you would show them that your way is better, that you would show them the true life that is here, and that outside of you there is nothing, that your value and your worth become preeminent. Help us to be people who recognize when falsehood is there because of how well we know the truth. Let this be a church where the truth is taught and celebrated and learned and discussed. Let these people be disciples who make disciples, who homeschool theology for themselves and for their families. Let us be a church filled with truth. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.